Hey guys, welcome to the Rational Optimization Podcast. My guest today is Ross Howard. He's the author of the book Changing Names, The Changeling and the Witch. He's also a sociologist and a teacher. And today we talked about his pro process of writing this book. And yeah, it's, it's a fantasy book, by the way. And yeah, also about the validity of science and like like the truth of science and we also went into meditation buddhism it was the first time i shared an idea and it's the idea that i want to go maybe on a meditation retreat where you just sit for 10 days sit and meditate no talking no looking other people's in the eyes um yeah yeah we talked about this idea it was interesting guys enjoy children's fantasy book like a like a short one or it ended up being pretty long it was um it was kind of my dream since i was a kid yeah uh since uh, i read um northern lights and harry potter and uh the spiderwick chronicles and things like that i always wanted to write a uh, fantasy book it was always my favorite thing to uh, read those kind of things so A lot, a lot of my life I was like writing things and not liking them and this is a fantasy book about uh, pre-Christian Ireland which took um, I was doing it kind of like passively on and off for three years and then I did the editing process during COVID and finished it off okay well, what is it like what how many pages I th it's 20 chapters so I think it's like it's a it's it's a, a lot I think it's, just say about it's like 400 pages damn that's a real that's maybe a real 300 book pages book. It's, it's yeah 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 <laughs> maybe it was my editing I should have edited it more um but yeah it was uh it was a really nice um process and to actually finishing finishing something after writing for a long time it was nice so yeah today uh i put it on to uh, kindle because i've sent it around to publishers and uh nobody wants to publish it one person wanted to co-publish it with me so i would have to pay money as well but then i could lose money and i, I don't want to lose money on a book um but i suppose the a lot of the podcast is about meaning My a podcast? lot of your podcast is yeah. about meaning, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, I guess that has been a big part about the meaning drive of my life is um, doing something that I dreamed about as a kid and trying to uh, get better at writing. I guess that gives me a lot of meaning in life. Mm -hmm. Just I'm I'm curious. Like uh, it's it's okay. The, this podcast it's mainly about meaning. But just if there's something interesting, it's for all. Of okay. You. So, yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Like, I don't have to always pull like, it back. Like, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Um, what is your book about? Like, so it's about um, a girl called Beth, who um, she's being kept by she's being kept prisoner by uh, or not prisoner but like a foster daughter of a witch, and then she leaves to try to find uh, priestesses of her favorite goddess. But she leaves the place where the witch lives, and she starts to find out that all the gods are being sacrificed to a different god. And then she has to save. Or save yeah 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 she sa has to save, sa save the, the save the morgan or try to save other gods and then 
Um, I guess I put a lot of like my own thoughts and philosophy into it. So I think that the way that I see religion and belief a lot of the time is everything feeds into the next uh, layer of belief. So even if you're a, let's say a Christian and all your beliefs technically should be completely against, uh, I don't know, Greek pagan beliefs, the Greek pagan beliefs still informs so much of what comes after, whether it really agrees with the key tenets of Christianity or not. So a lot of the things that I was looking at in this book were, um, I don't like discuss it like this, but it's about uh, s um, syncretism and like how beliefs come together to form something else. Beliefs don't really, in my opinion, eradicate other beliefs. They like synthesize them. They like meet them halfway and form something new. So over time it changes, it like gets into a new one. And you put this into the book by, are, are those like the gods? Are they all like from a polo, po polytheistic mm -hmm. like world? Or are those like different beliefs, like God of different, like is there like the, uh, I don't know, like the, 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 gods of the vikings and the gods of the romans and the gods of the greeks or something like that it's all based in ireland so it's um it's all celtic gods and it's like different waves of celtic gods and one of them is more mono monotheistic and it seemed like it might sweep everything else away and it ends um mixing the beliefs in a, in a way and um, carrying it forward, not through eradicating other beliefs, but through absorbing them in a sense. And the main character, as she goes on, starts to realize that the Morgan was not the absolute enemy of previous gods, that she actually came from a wave of previous gods. And that's something that I was reading about Celtic mythology. And it was, it was like other people, waves of people would come into Ireland but they would never wipe out all the beliefs. They would just get added to the system. So in Irish mythology, um, one of the biggest sources is called the Book of Invasions. Um, and that is about four waves of immigration into Ireland, like kind of mythological. But they reckon the mythology might have been based in something real, like different waves of um, like Celts, um, along with like um, Indo-Europeans, people who came before that, different waves of Celtic beliefs, and all of these people brought their own um, cultures, their own moral beliefs, and sometimes they would have been completely different or opposed to the other beliefs, but they found the middle ground somehow, do you know? Mm -hmm. um, so it's about, I suppose, about culture and how culture develops. But like these are all like the overarching ideas. When do you know like it's still supposed to be it's a fancy entertaining? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's supposed to be entertaining. Um, so yeah, I tried to make it entertaining, and uh, it took me years to write it in a way where I didn't hate reading it, because <laughs> now I can kind of read it and go, "Oh, this isn't terrible." But before a year ago, I was everything. I was just like, "Like this is all terrible." This is all terrible. So to get to a point where I'm like, this, oh, this is, this is okay. This is pretty. This is much closer to anything I've ever written before, to my idea of what I wanted to write. So um, yeah, I uh, put it onto Kindle Books today, and I will make my family and friends buy it. 
Nice. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's, um, how was how was the pro process like? Like you say in the beginning, you you spent three years on the book, right? It was Or? yeah, yeah. So um, I three years. Yeah, yeah. I think three years, maybe four years. I had a previous book which I kind of scrapped, but lots of the ideas came into that, and I began writing that in Madrid uh, five years ago. And the idea for the book, I think I've always kind of had since I was a child. So this is still something I wanted to like uh, fine tune and shave off all the spare parts. And then um, try to uh, actually get it to a point where I was happy enough with it. And um, it was, yeah, it was my favorite thing when I was a kid to read stuff by... Uh, J.K. Rowling and Diana Wynne-Jones and Philip Pullman, and that never really, it never really left me. Um, I still enjoy those kind of books. I still enjoy uh, that different kind of perspective on things that it gives. Um, and I think that writing for a younger age group isn't necessarily, doesn't make it like weaker or worse fiction it's just you have to express it in a specific way so i still think that a lot of the best books i've ever read have been aimed for uh children obviously i like uh, i'm i like lots of books but um this that was the one that really um connected with me most okay nice and <coughs> so you <laughs> You started, you wrote like your fa first draft and then you kept like... I hated the first draft. Yes. <laughs> I hated the first draft. And because I read it, I wrote in a big rush. Then I was like, oh, this is actually really good. Then I read it back and I was like, oh, I should, I should never write again. This is the worst thing in the world. Um, but then the, I completely scrapped that, went back at the plan again, got that to a point where I was happy enough with it, got other people to read it and criticize it as much as I could. Um... And yeah, just chipped away at it so much until it was done. It was uh, it was a lot of work, but I think the process was worth it. Even if it, I don't expect it to get any attention or to make money. Besides, like me pushing my friends and family into buying it, that should be worth like I don't know, hundred quid or something. But um, when I look back at it, the process was worth it. Okay. So, you do you just so you just did it for like because you like to write or is there like a plan to become an author like like a proper? Um, if the opportunity arose, it would be fantastic, but I don't expect to. Um, Especially I was very happy with this book and it didn't have uh, so many takers. So do you know I could keep writing for the rest of my life and not... So many takers? So many people who... Um, when I was sending it to publishers, not so many people who wanted to take oh, okay, it. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I... Um, yeah, it was... Um, 
really nice to uh well some parts were really shitty to write but lots of it was uh, very interesting the process of thinking about it and uh filling it out was uh, very interesting so i think it it felt like it helped my own perspective in a way it helped me really appreciate other writers even more getting to this point um and i already do you know, like, I, I love uh, Philip Pullman and Neil Gaiman and Alan Moore and Diana Wynne-Jones, um, these kind of authors. And doing this helped me to appreciate those kind of writers even more. And the, uh, the discipline when you're writing about a fantasy world to, not, to stay in a lane and not let everything just get carried away. Hmm. How, much, how much time do you think did this take oh jesus uh so much time <laughs> when i think about all the time in like cafes and buses and planes and uh times in the evening i used to wake up at work before spain at six so i could write for an hour uh, but i was in spain so it was hot as hell as well so it made sense to wake up at six um how much i would say hundreds of hours is writing it over years? It's probably hard. To writing most days, yeah. I, it's impossible for me to calculate yeah. accurately. Like, like I got no idea. Yeah, yeah, But yeah. if I said like 500 hours, like it could easily be 500 hours. Yeah. It could, it could be close to like a thousand hours. Yeah. Um. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I haven't thought about that before. It's, no, it's <laughs> cool. Like, uh, it's uh, yeah. If, as you said, like, there's a lot of experience in it, maybe, and it's like... Yeah. Yeah, depends on the goal, you know? Yeah, uh, yeah, like for sure. Um, and there is a book that I read called The uh, the War of Art. Yeah. Uh, have you heard I, about this? I, I as think well? I read the summary. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. and it was um, my... Um, I got it as a present, and it was... It felt like one of the most true books that I ever read. The idea of like resistance and how that pushes away, you away from the thing that you really want to do. And the thing that you really want to do can be very difficult to do. And I found lots of times sitting down and writing it, it felt very difficult to do. Like sometimes I wake up at, you know, like whatever, six in the morning. I'd be like, okay, I can write for an hour, then I can go to work. And someone's like, what am I doing? Like, this is, who's going to read this? Who's this for? Like, I'm waking up an extra hour for no reason. Um, but then later on, I was the reason was completing it. The reason was being able to do it. And having it like, um, like a manuscript, like done, felt uh, very significant. And looking back at the first draft compared to the last draft, and seeing the progress that I've made as a writer, even if I'm not a great writer now, just that progress was so much. And I think, oh, I could have spent it on other things, but I probably would have spent it on something. I probably would have wasted that time if I hadn't have focused on this. Um, so it was, uh, it was very rewarding. And I know you said we don't have to talk specifically about meaning, We will. <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> you got the questions about meaning. Yeah. Um, but I, yeah, it felt very meaningful for me in a very satisfying way. 
Um, and when I think back uh, on being able to have made it, it still uh, makes me happy when I think about it, which is, so it was very, it was a good experience. Nice, man. Um, cool. So a little bit about you before uh, we talk more about meaning. Like what mm -hmm. is, um, first, what are you doing? Uh, like, uh What what made you come here to the Netherlands? Um, I wanted to uh, study again. I was a bit unsure about what I wanted to do. I was working as an English teacher in um, Vietnam, and I thought I thought about studying, going back to university, study history for a long time. And that's what I studied when I first went to university when I was. Uh, like 18 to 22, and then I took a break off to teach English. So I wanted to do, come back to um, get further education just so I could get like a, a solid job. Um, so I came back and I studied uh, sociology instead of history because a sociology degree would be a science degree, so it'd be more likely that I would get a job. But looking back, I wish I had studied history instead. Why? Um, I, if I think it, I connect with it better than I do with, um, with science and statistics, obviously history, obviously includes science and statistics as well. Statistics are very important, but, um, something about the dryness of sociology, um, I didn't, did, didn't really connect with And um, we did a statistics uh, course. I didn't think it was very well taught. By the end of it, people weren't even answering the lecture and stuff. So it was like, um, it was useful to a point, but uh, maybe not so much for me. Um, and I think sociology is very interesting and it can be very useful. Um, but I find history more colorful. I find it easier to engage with history. Um, and looking back, I wish I had chosen to study a master's in history instead of sociology. Um, uh, still not too late, but, uh, it was still something that, um, I, I don't know, because I feel like I can really connect with history. I feel like I can really um, see the use. I can really see how colorful it is when different uh, cultures mingle and how that's introduced so many amazing things into, um, into the world um, and so many also like horrific things into the world. And as much as you can try to be objective, they've really gotten rid of the idea of objectivity up to a point. Um, in history? In history, yeah, yeah. But in terms of like the narratives, I find a lot of the narratives very interesting. And I like that history is a discipline now where they're kind of like, um, you can't get to the absolute truth. Getting to the absolute truth doesn't uh, work. You should try, but you can't exactly. The idea that everything is subjective, every fact you pick is subjective, I find that very interesting. And I think that's true 
from my experience w experiences with the social sciences in terms of sociology and psychology as well. Um, but they're kind of more like, no, this is a science. This is really a science. Don't believe anybody who says it's humanity. And then I was like experiencing and I was like, there are statistics involved, of course, everything involves statistics, but it still seems imprecise to the point where it's more of a humanity than a science. Um, and I didn't realize it to that extent when I started studying sociology, if that makes sense. Yeah. Well, yeah. You study psychology, right? I studied psychology. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Science. <laughs> now, like all the first, uh, all the lectures uh, in the beginning of psychology were all like about establishing why this is a science and how we work. It's like all uh, how like the empirical methods, how how we conduct experiments, how we uh, mm. gain knowledge in psychology, and um, it was actually pretty good explanation how they try to make it a science of course mm -hmm. you can't really uh, it's really really hard to get to objective truth if maybe even impossible uh, in, in this field but still there are methods to get closer to truth and um, with experiments and uh, studies you can for sure advance and they really try to do it right but it's it's hard um, yeah no no for sure and yeah. I, i'm sure you know it gets better with every single yeah. data point that you can get yeah um but i see the problem in saying this is ultimate truth like we found it out now and this is how it is. Yeah, yeah yeah especially when it's something like sometimes i'd see something and it'd be like choose your Choose your method of analysis based on the thing that's most likely to get you a result. And, you know, you can say like, oh, you don't have to. You're not allowed to change your method of analysis. But if you examine your data set before you go into any kind of publishing process, you can change it as many times as you want. No? I, uh, so I mean, maybe uh, now it's, it's getting better. It's, it's getting yeah. more, like, rigorous. Yeah. Because I, now I think that if you propose a... An, an idea I saw was that you, you pre-register, yeah, yeah, exactly. And that seems like, like a really science. good idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I, but I don't know how, how much that uh, is actually true in the field. Do you know? Like, it could be. It could absolutely be true. But from my experience, it seemed like a lot of tweaking things just a little bit, just a little bit to see how it goes, see if it can become um, significant. And as much as they say, like, they're trying to get rid of significance being, like, the important thing because that drives um, prejudice and different interpretations. It drives, like, manipulation of the data to get the results you want. Um, is Do you know, is that, like, effective yet? From what I've seen, it's not very effective yes i think they're trying yeah. like i think they're trying their best and i think especially like with open science pre-registration and stuff uh, they it's it, there are improvements and they are like always uh, thinking back uh, like there's so much critique like the, for example the replication crisis i, I think you also didn't we talk about it i we don't talked know about we, this yeah, in the sauna yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's uh actually for all the people listening to this, we met in the sauna. Um, <laughs> but um, it's the yeah, exactly the replication cr crisis. This was uh, in philosophy uh, in psychology. It was a big thing as well. Mm -hmm. Like uh, and they, I think from that on, they really tried to improve their methods. So this is not 
gonna happen again so i, I yeah. don't know if it's like it's it's perfect it's for sure not perfect now but it's improving and yeah i think this is fine like you can't maybe you can't find absolute truth but you can get closer to it and they try to improve the methods yeah. yeah 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 and i suppose like it doesn't have to be absolutely true as long as it's applicable and useful so even as long as yeah and i suppose replicating certain types of like subjective psychological studies anyway is such a difficult thing it's such a difficult thing where if you introduce like two subjects you know what do you mean? Like, Two. let's say um, if you have an experiment where you involve two individuals instead of one individual, then both of them have to react the same way generally. And I suppose the idea is that you multiply it out so many times that you get an average. Um, but then how many variables do you need to, like, make that accurate in some way it seems like it would be and i suppose now is the time when we do get those data sets that are so big and encompass every single thing you do to the point that it knows you better than you then that can create like an accurate thing but from what i see like that's big tech companies and big um big data centers i don't know I'm not sure how much that is universities who have access to that but i could be wrong I think it's hard, yeah. So what you say, it's like you can make probability judgments. I did a podcast with a friend on actually on this, like on on like how how accurate this tried through um, uh, induction, like through like you have your sample and you learn something through it and you get like probabilities and stuff, mm -hmm. but you don't really like you don't start to really understand, like you you just. Like, I, I can't tell you, like, just because I have, like, a rule that I found out from a study with, like, one million people, even if it's, like, super accurate, I, I can't really tell how it is for one specific human because there are so many more vari variables, you know? Mm -hmm. And, uh, mm -hmm. yeah, I think, yeah, it's it's hard. How How is this, like, in, in sociology? So you're is even more, like, focused on big big groups. Like, what exactly did you did you research there? Or, yeah. Um, we looked at lots of things. I was doing um, a health-specific track of sociology. Um, so we uh, looked specifically, me from my master's, I looked at um, the... What's the name of the big European sample again? Everybody uses it. I used a sample which was across seven European countries focused in secondary schools. Um, it's okay, just a, yeah. Yeah, it was a European-wide study, and it's focused on uh, smoking and group influence. Um, I think they found out something like, it was like half of, over half of the cases they had to annul immediately because they wouldn't answer the questions about smoking still. <laughs> I didn't think it was such a... A great study. When I looked at it, it didn't seem as accurate as uh, people let on. But it was a huge sample size, and it is a big thing. It is a big thing across all of that. So I looked at that. Um, we looked at a few different sample sizes. I thought the theory was the most interesting thing about a lot about sociology. And the last day, we talked about... Um, 
when we met at the gym, I think we talked about Daniel Kahneman and like the two tracks of thought. Yes. But that's really struck with me. That was something. There were certain things that I learned studying a master's at Tilburg. And I'd heard about this kind of idea before, but when we kind of went into it so more w- then, I thought it was very interesting. The, the, the idea is, uh, from Daniel Kahneman, Kahneman, there are like two ways of thinking, like system one is system two thinking, slow thinking, fast thinking. Mm-hmm. I think he wrote a big th- uh, a book, uh, Thinking Fast and Slow. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's about that you, that as humans, we mostly think pretty reflexively, like, uh, and, but we can, like, we, we think super fast with prejudice, with intuition, and this is a really effective way, but often also leads to mistakes. And yeah. uh, there's like the second way of thinking. This is like the deep, uh, controlled, um, slow thinking where you are really, like really thinking, which takes a long time, but can be more accurate, but it's also much more energy intensive and time intensive so it's yeah 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 yeah. and one of them is yeah just kind of like a a reflex and um one of the ideas um which we examined which which uh, grew out of that was the idea that um everything you nearly everything you do is actually based on your like immediate self like your um, reflexive self and that the main um, purpose of uh, stream two thinking i think stream two is slow thinking right i is think thing. so as well yeah um that that could be seen more as like a a may, way of thinking to create narratives about about yourself and about the world so like let's say you're hungry immediately so you snap at somebody and you get angry at someone um but then you don't connect it back to the eating and then maybe later on you're like i'm a bad person that would be i think considered like um that would be like stream two thinking filtering just your hunger and putting it into some kind of moral aspect when it was something completely biologically driven so maybe it wasn't immoral at all and the same way the other thing um you saw somebody hitting a woman on the street and you just reacted and attacked them and it's like oh you're brave you're a moral person but morality i think implies yeah thinking about it deeply and so how much does that is that reflected on just your urges are these like just like are they how much are your reflexive urges based on your personality and how related is your stream one thinking to your stream two thinking like your actions and what you do and how you reflect on them and how you bring them into yourself as a being as a person which of those is actually more prominent? So about the thing, like like the like the uh, with the free will. So it feels like like your system too tells you, yeah, yeah, you have free will. Like I did this because I'm a moral moral person. Mm-hmm. But like in in real life, system one was just like like 
you think that you made like a rational decision but in real life it was just like a decision that was influenced by like that you were hungry in this moment and you didn't sleep well the night mm -hmm. before and like uh do you believe we have free will what do you mean what do you mean by free will <laughs> um do you do you believe that so before like, maybe we can say do you believe that the system two still has like that the system two still makes decisions or is everything system one and system two only like I, i don't even know if this is like the exact like use of the way kahneman used this but we can say with this definition like can would you say that system two steers at all or is it just interpreting what like you you do based on your emotions and like processes um i really like uh meditation and i really like some of the ideas about that buddhism attaches to meditation um and i th think that you can have free will in terms of that stream two can become um, imbued to you into the point if you're regularly thinking about these moral things then maybe it can affect your um, your immediate reactions especially when like I used to um, have a problem same problem that lots of people have that I would be uh, too carried away with my emotions if I was sad I would get really sad and I would react to situations based on that if I was angry the same if I was happy the same I, you know it wasn't a level position to be acting on but if you uh, meditate more then you can realize certain biological urges um, maybe like heat on the face, a pain in the stomach, tingling on your skin, things that when you're in a heightened emotional state, maybe you don't realize are even happening. But when you meditate and th like meditate yourself into a position where you're normally stressed, you can say, how does my body react to this stress? And then you effectively get more control of it and when i've been meditating recently and i do get into a stressful situation it is like all of the meditation i'll be doing has been practiced for this exact situation so i think with um certain ways of training the mind uh stream two thinking can become connected with you in a way where it becomes the immediate reaction But then I suppose the whole thing about free will is like, what made you meditate in the first place? And then it's like, okay, well, then I don't know. Yeah, then yeah. I don't know. But in terms of being able to um, change your immediate reactions to match more with your underlying belief system, I think you can do it with practice and discipline up to a point. Yeah. It's hmm. interesting. Do you meditate a lot? Uh, I meditate every day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, sometimes for 10 minutes, sometimes if I have longer, um, an hour. Yeah. Um, and I find it very useful. I know people who don't, because that, that thing, you know, like the chattering mind, the mind that won't shut up, I've always had a big problem with that. So I've, I can see the positive effect almost immediately once I understood what meditation was kind of like. Because I had the th same thing that lots of people had where you start meditating and you're like, oh, this sucks. 
this is just constant. I'm I can't empty my and then it's like you get to a point where I'm like, oh, the the same thing with writing. It's the process. It's not about. It is about emptying emptying the mind, but it's about failing. That's what it felt like to me anyway. The more you fail with like rejecting these thoughts or putting them out of your mind, the more you start to realize the easiest way to get rid of a thought which is really obtrusive is to accept it. To like, do you know, like when something's really resistant to it, what I always learned from uh, Buddhism was it's not actually the pain that causes the suffering. It's not mainly the pain. The thing that causes the suffering is the resistance to the pain. And whenever I've had a repetitive thought, and I do have a real problem with like repetitive thoughts sometimes, if I can accept that repetitive thought and not get annoyed at it, which is kind of getting annoyed at myself, it's ridiculous, then it's so much easier to let it go or reabsorb it into you or have it, have it gone. So, so much of meditation felt like learning that sometimes pushing does not help. Sometimes, especially when you're pushing your own mind, it causes more problems than you're going to fix anyway. And that accepting these things and slowly working on them is much healthier. And I think that that uh, is true for a lot of my experiences in life. So I feel like meditation has been very... Um, very useful in like difficult times. Yeah. Mm, do you <coughs> do you all good? All good. <laughs> um, do you have any connections to Buddhism, or did you only start meditating for yourself because like you found out about it on YouTube or something? Um. Mm, mm. I don't remember the first time I ever meditated. I'm trying to uh, think. I suppose it probably would have been like in a religion class or a philosophy class in school. There's a well, religion. I'm from Ireland. We didn't have a philosophy class in my school. We had a religion class. Um, and we did uh, meditation there. And I didn't take it seriously. Um, I didn't care. I think the first time I really got into it heavily was when I was in Spain and I started meeting more people who were interested in it and I met, met a few um, Buddhists who explained the theory behind it and I thought the theory was very Like, don't think about them having a fun time. Don't think about it. That is all I can think about. Then I'm trying to push it down and it's it's in my head. I'm trying to use my own mind to shut up my mind. It's it's ridiculous. Um, and then when I was like, oh, it's 
it doesn't matter even if it was true which i have no way of knowing if it is true and then allowing those thoughts to go through that that was the most useful thing for me um, and when i was i used to work in vietnam in ho chi minh as an english teacher and i went on holiday with my ex at the time my girlfriend and her mother and i lost my passport in thailand we went to thailand and i lost my passport i got stolen i think it got stolen but it was gone and so i got stuck in thailand for four weeks when I wasn't supposed to be there. So I was living in this hostel, just trying to spend as little money as I could until I went home, until I could get my passport from Ireland and go back to Vietnam. But I was the owner of the B&B I was at was uh, a really nice Thai woman, and she was really into Buddhism, and she gave me this fantastic meditation primer by Akan Chak... I can check, I think, but it was um, really excellent. And it talked about different stages of meditation and different problems people have and the resistance that people can have to it. And uh, it really, um, it really resonated with me. Um, I really enjoyed the stillness of it. I really enjoy it, especially when you do it for ages and you're like 40 minutes in, 45 minutes in. And sometimes I'd be like, I set my alarm for an hour and I'd be sitting there, I'd be like, I definitely forgot to set my alarm. This has to have been like six hours. <laughs> like I would really, my mind would be fully like, it's like seven o'clock. You've been here for six hours. What are you doing? What are you doing? And be like, no, no, don't open my eyes to see if it's nighttime yet. Um, and I love that feeling of reminding myself of how um, variable time is or the perception of time is all over the place. And if I just shut my eyes and try to focus on my mind for 40 minutes, it seems like it could be 10 hours. It seems like it could be three minutes and just being lost in in that space, I think is very uh, refreshing. And I still really like that. That's something I come back to for um, to meditation again and again. Sometimes I feel like I, I have to do these things today. I need to rush to do these things. I have to do all these things. Um, and then I would meditate and remember how, um, yeah, time is so variable depending on how you um, how you look at it, how you look at it. And a lot of the time, the stress would have been causing me to waste time anyway. Um, and so many of the things about not being angry at your thoughts and not pushing away your thoughts and not being guilty about your thoughts and understanding that they are you to an extent, but to another extent, they are their own thing. You don't control them so much. You might as well try to control the flow of the flow of blood in your veins like it's something that you have to accept to a certain extent um, blood in the veins is probably a bad example because you can't control your thoughts eventually um, so yeah I think that everything that I learned about Buddhism and meditation and Letting go of things, it made sense to me. The only thing I really still struggle with is the idea, and I might just be a misunderstanding, but the idea that once you let go of everything, that's the goal. 
And once you let go of all attachments to everybody, that's the goal. But that seems also not attractive to me if 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 you get if you get me like the idea of having it completely level to the point where it's like okay i'm not going to get affected by it i have empathy for people but i'm not getting torn up by them being in pain and i'm focused on helping them rather than feeling their pain then that's fantastic but it seems like and i could be misunderstanding it it seems like the ultimate goal of Buddhism is complete disconnection. I think, yeah, it's maybe... Which seems like too too much, no? <laughs> yeah. I, I think it's interesting. It's, it's an idea. It's like... I also... I, 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 I also really like the ideas of Buddhism, but like not 100%, because it's like... If you see, like, also this life is suffering. I don't agree. Like, life is not pure suffering. It's not that you that everything is suffering and you have to break out from it. Like, life has so amazing qualities. Uh, and mm, But I see the point of saying, like, okay, I want to just accept everything and have, like, a true... Uh, I, I read an amazing book about this. Maybe I will... I can't tell you how how it, it's like a it's like a story about a um, guy from the West that went to like a, a Shaolin monks mm -hmm. like and started meditating there and like like he learned uh, to meditate and it's like it's like a story so it's really amazing to read but it's like teaching you all the like he's going through all the steps and yeah, it's, yeah. it's it's really amazing and um, and. <laughs> Like the way he did, like his meditation teacher, uh, in the end, he just went up into the hills because he was super old and like he, he was super strong. But I think it was like uh, at some point he was like, I'm going to go into the hills and just uh, go there to meditate and die, you mm -hmm. know? And mm -hmm. um, I, it, it seems really romantic. Like it's just like that you're so. You're so uh, in in peace with yourself that you yeah, can just yeah. do this. Yeah, and see you later. I'm gonna uh, die now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This is like uh, th this. This seems really cool. I think to be able to do this. Mm. Um, but also, the the thing you said with like letting everything, everything go, like all empathy, all. Um, like I think the romantic idea is more of thinking about okay. Um, I'm gonna like what you said. Like I'm gonna meditate. I'm gonna learn, so I'm not affected by the negative things, but I still yeah. feel the positive things. So yeah, like, yeah. like you you pick you pick the good things and use meditation as a tool. But uh, in Buddhism, you can say okay, maybe it's 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 about leveling everything. So not only like everything is just like yeah. And there's different schools and yeah. stuff, and I could completely be yeah. misunderstanding it. But it seems like yeah, a certain part of the goal is that one day. You finish meditation, you go, hey, fuck you, mom. I don't care about you anymore. I'm leaving. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to see you again. I care about you as much as I care about the bush yeah. or the cloud in the sky. It's all immaterial. And it's like, well, I don't want that. But that could be just an oversimplification. Maybe once it gets to that point, it's something kind of different. But maybe it's, a, it's the same thing with Christianity and lots of religions and sacrifice that to reach certain 
spiritual and religious goals in every religion I've seen requires a lot of sacrifice. So maybe that's the equivalent. And maybe also um, it's not that you say, fuck you, mom. You Maybe it's more that you say, not not that you, you start uh, you, that you stop loving the things you love but that you start loving everything like that mm -hmm. is like a like a like enlightenment that yeah, is like yeah, a, yeah. like a thing that you like i am i'm not attached but i'm like in the the whole world is like yeah is like yeah good. like um, which is a similar yeah yeah that's true that's true this fish matters as much to me but i really love this fish so yeah, don't yeah, feel so, bad so it's not <laughs> <laughs> like okay fantastic yeah yeah there is yeah there's a book by kurt vonnegut called it was god bless you mr rosewater and it's about a guy who's very like a christ figure and his father hates it and he's uh, he's like oh so you don't love me anymore he's like no i love you as much as i love everybody and he goes like then you don't love anything and it's just that sort of thing that if nothing special is if, if everything is special is anybody special and if you don't love somebody more than you love a stranger then is it is it love It's hard. It's a tricky one for sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, yeah, so I'm not sure about that at all, but I love meditation. Nice. And uh, it's fi I find it very difficult still, but I find it very rewarding still. I've been doing it for years, but it still feels like I'll regularly find new things when I'm meditating. So... I, I really like it. I really like it. Yeah. Hmm. This is interesting. I, maybe I can ask you this because, like, actually, since yesterday, I'm thinking about um, you know Vipassana? Do I know uh, who? V Vipassana? Have you ever heard of it? Vipassana? It's, yes. Uh, I, yeah. oh, I can explain. Uh, because it's like a um, meditation retreat. Uh, where you go and it's like there are different time spans I think like the main one is 10 days and so you go into this place they are like all over the world they have like the centers and uh, you go there and for 10 days you just meditate it's like for, it, it's like everything is like organized you stand up at four in the morning and then mm -hmm. you meditate for like one and a half hours then you have like then you meditate for another hour then you eat something then you meditate for two hours then you have like half an hour break then you meditate like it's yeah, yeah. meditating for 10 hours it's like you don't talk you don't look people into the eye you don't um, and is this for the whole day it's like a silent retreat everything is silent um I think there are like two times a day where you can ask the teachers if you have questions, then like you're allowed to talk to them, but everything else is silent and not only mm -hmm. silent, you also like you shouldn't communicate with other people. So also mm -hmm. like writing on a piece of paper and this, this would not, uh, this counts yeah, as like, yeah, yeah. It's like, oh, I'm silent. It's <laughs> <laughs> also not sign language or anything. So you, nice to meet you. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's you like do you don't look people in the eye, nothing. It's just like you're just... Um, Uh, in the evening, there is like, I think, half an hour or an hour, there's some teaching. So mm -hmm. um, there you listen to somebody talk, but otherwise you're, so you don't say anything. You're also not allowed to write anything down. You're yeah. just like, uh, and I'm thinking about doing this. Like, uh, I think that was fantastic. Yeah, um, yeah. But I, I think it's, it's got to be really hard because like I did meditation as well. And this is just a, this is a huge step of, you know, like 10 days. 
it sounds yeah, intense yeah, it's, it's intense as shit extremely yeah yeah intense. but like really so rewarding is because it sounds like and it like you know like when you jog do you like jogging you jog? Yeah, uh, I don't jog, but I, I think I know where you're going. Yeah, you mean if you it go for sucks. Re- yeah. <laughs> yeah, it yeah. sucks, but it's nice to be finished, and you yeah, get the rewards. So like, it sounds like this will be very difficult, but the rewards of doing that for ten days could be, um, could completely change your life. Cause yeah, ten days. Of s- How long are we silent now? Like really, when we're Besides when we're sleeping, how silent are we for... Like, in my life, I listen to so many podcasts and stuff, I have never silence. Like, I tried this a few times. Like, once I did, um, I think I was 18 or something, or 19, and I just um, went on the field, like, near our house Mm -hmm. with, like, a chair, put this chair there, and sat there for 24 hours straight. Really? Did nothing, Yes. Nothing. Not e- not even meditating. Just nothing. I would have given up. Quit. Especially at eighteen. I would have yeah, yeah. been like after an hour. I would have been like. Fuck. I didn't have a clock. I I had brought. A <laughs> <laughs> I was I was sitting there like I think somewhere in the morning at ten. I sat down and it was like okay. Next morning, like at ten, I know like the 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 bells of the church will like ring and stuff, mm-hmm. and then I'm uh, I'm allowed to go home again. <laughs> You're like, waiting for the church bells. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's really. <laughs> and it's like, um, so I was like, I'm gonna do this, and this was interesting, like. But I, I didn't really have, like, big insight or anything. Because when you do this, you expect, like, oh, I'm going to do this. And then yeah. I'm going to have, like, the super big new new way of thinking. And I'm going to 24 gonna be, hours. Like, I presume yeah, yeah. something. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but, yeah. But it was just, like, yeah, I just sat there and it was, like, yeah, that's it. And I, I'm a little bit afraid that this will happen with 10 days as well. But <laughs> you get you, seven days and you're, like, yeah. I'm hitting no enlightenment. <laughs> I'm darker. I'm in, I'm in darkened. I'm this just, is not helping I'm whatsoever. Just, I'm just sitting here and, like... <laughs> I'm bored. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I don't mm. know. But I'm, I'm thinking about this. Maybe I will I will do this. And if I do this, I for sure make an episode about it. But uh, yeah. I will... I will. I think it's interesting because meditation is really interesting. Uh, and there are... I think it's it's more like... If, if I do this 10-day thing, it's more like exploration. It's like, just see what happens. Yeah. And it's like... Yeah, of um, course. Yeah. Maybe it's 10 days... Maybe it's not so much. Maybe it's a lar- huge change in life. Yeah, I, th- I, I feel like it. Um, yeah, I'm sure that there's people who go and have there's no effect whatsoever. But I think with that kind of focus, because yeah, I can imagine that going out into a field with a chair, <laughs> presumably some kind of realization. Made a realization is I don't like fields or whatever. Mm-hmm. But um, were you like, so you you were completely by yourself? Nothing else, just me. You're just on a chair. chair, you're just walking around every now and again? No. You didn't even get off the chair? No, just to... So this is during uh, summer? Just No, nah, it was not so hot. It was just like a good, I don't know. And I think you say 20 f- 24 hours. That's, I think that sounds... Elias, that's so intense. <laughs> that sounds yeah. so intense. Yeah. And you didn't get any benefits? No. <laughs> that's not good. But, uh, you know, I was in like was a... Was it a bad field? Oh, no, Maybe no. it was a field. Oh. Oh. Wait, there is a timer here. Um, oh, yeah, I need to buy my friend cigarettes. 
<laughs> okay. <laughs> oh, we can we can we can keep talking. We can keep yeah, talking. Okay, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, no. Um, so, wait. I was like this twenty four hours. It was that you know, I was mainly in like a state of. I was not really sleeping, but I was also not really awake. You know, I was like, yeah. just like sitting there and like in kind of a, like um, maybe this is different if you learn like because in, if I do this ten day retreat, you know, they really teach you what meditation means. Yeah. So they're like, okay, yeah. I, I think for the first three, three days straight, you only focus on like the point below your nose. So there's like only this point, and mm. it's like. Three days straight, you only, uh, and after three days, they start to teach you like a body scan and stuff. And it's like super, it's it's taught. It's not like I'm mm. just, just going to sit here for 24 hours. Yeah. That's it. They like, don't throw you an like, apple and go yeah. get out of here. Yeah. yeah. And go um, find it. Yeah, yeah. uh, so, so maybe this is different. And mm. uh, I'm really thinking about trying it, but like 10 days, you can do a lot in 10 days. So I could also work on another goal. But uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. How often are during that 10 days? Yeah, how yeah. often would you be like, I could be biking. Yeah. I could be in a mount on a yeah, mountain somewhere. Yeah. I'm here with these silent idiots nobody yeah. makes eye contact with me yeah yeah <laughs> the thoughts but i think that would be rewarding as well that would be rewarding too in its own way yeah uh, i'm thinking about it okay but to come back to you um i want to ask you about your goals but i also want to know about your life because what you told me now is that you so you're from Ireland, and you also were in uh, Myanmar, and also in uh, you were teaching in um, in Spain as well. Um, or I went I went to uh, Vietnam. Uh, Vietnam. I, I've okay, never yeah. been to uh, uh, Myanmar. Myanmar. Oh, here. It's fantastic, though, but I haven't been. Just if you maybe if you want to just. If you can give like a five minute recap yeah. of your life, like a quick, a quick walkthrough. And uh, you also told me like in this also, I want something I want to talk about, like in the sauna that uh, you, I don't know if it's uh, okay to say this, but you, you had like cancer. Yeah, this, this is a this is a very intense sauna trip we had. Yes, exactly. I realize now that <laughs> yes. we, yeah, yeah. I was, I was all... Uh, I was water deprived. Yeah. <laughs> I was just talking to try to not pass out. But yeah, yeah. I was um, doing my push-ups. But <laughs> you were doing push-ups in the sauna. Yeah, yeah. So I was just trying not to pass out while sitting down. Um, yeah. So um, I grew up in Ireland. Um, I was. Uh, my father was English. My mother was Irish. They both still are. Um, I have six full siblings and two other half siblings so a very big family and seven of us grew up together um in a very packed very busy house um yeah and then when i was going through it all now is very uh it's um very strange but yeah we grew up in this uh, big house when i was nine i i got a tumor in my back and i had to uh, get a i had to do chemotherapy for a year and i had to do um i had to get a, a rib and a bit removed i had to um yeah it was very very intense it was a very intense treatment uh, but i got over that 
Um, and I guess in terms of like the topic of meaning, I was just a biography for five minutes, but I think that that affected how I viewed um, the meaning of life a lot. That it was a it was a encounter with mortality outside of like a normal period, really a very immediate, direct. When you were nine years old. Yeah. Damn. Yeah, 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 yeah. It was very I lost all my hair. I was like green colored. I was very sick. Um so people didn't like look at me like I was like disgusting or anything. But a lot of like sympathy and a lot of like like shocked looks and stuff, which was strange as a child to receive. Um so it kind of went completely against the narrative that I had had about what a, a normal life would be. So it had a big impact on my uh, psychology and how I viewed the world. Um, then I got over that. I got better. I got all my hair back. It was uh, it was really good. Um, and then a few years later, I had, because I had a couple of ribs removed, um, my spine bent and I got scoliosis and I needed more surgery. So every, so much surgery. When I was 16, I got surgery for scoliosis. Um, then I went to university. When I was 19, I went to Ghana in West Africa for teacher training um, close to Cape Coast in um, a central region, a really beautiful place, probably the most beautiful place I've ever been to in my life. Um, it was, it's, Ghana was a breathtaking country. Uh, Ghanaian people were so nice, so warm. Um, the Everything about the country is uh, fantastic. Um, but when I was there, I got malaria and I got encephalitis. I got bitten by some bugs. Yeah, I know. It was like, I was, <laughs> it was, it's not good. Uh, but I went back to Ireland and they didn't know it was a tropical disease. So they treated me as if I had a flu. Um, but I had encephalitis, which causes your brain to swell. And I had malaria, which makes you dehydrated, which also causes your brain to swell. So I went into a seizure. I had a seizure a couple of weeks after I came back from, I lived in Ghana for six months and I came back and three weeks later I went into, I had like a seizure and they put me into a coma and yeah, when I passed out, I was, I was on a beach with my friend. We were in Ireland. I was on the beach with my friend. I was feeling shitty, but I just thought it was a flu. Um, even though it had been a flu for a long time, I was skinny. I was like you see every bone in my body. But I was like, ah, I just came back from Africa. I'll just eat for a while. I'll be fine. Um, and I uh, passed out on the beach. Like, I lost my balance. I fell over. Felt like my eyes closed. And then I opened up my eyes and I was in hospital. And I was like, oh. And they were, like, asking me questions. They are like, what's your name? And I was like, Ross Howardovich. Like, how old are you? I was like... Uh, 20 and they're like okay okay and like to my mom they went I was like okay he doesn't seem to have brain damage and she started crying I just woken up so I was like what what's happening <laughs> what is this and they're like and I saw the sun was going down and I was like Jesus 
I was like, I was in the hinch this morning. Like, uh, it's how long was I out for? I must have been out for eight hours. In my head, I was like, shit. I was visiting my friend. I was like, now my trip to the beach is ruined. And I'm like, Ross, today's Tuesday. <laughs> you passed out on Sunday. <laughs> this is, you've been asleep for three days. And I was like, what? <laughs> what? <laughs> so that was, uh, out of all the things that happened to me, that I think might have been the most um, trippy, the, the strangest. Because everything else, when, when I'd been like for operations, they'd be like, you'll wake up in 18 hours or whatever. This one, I was really like, it must still be Sunday. It must be Sunday evening. Um, and I heard all those things that when you're in a coma, you dream or you feel the time passing and people say things to you and then you imagine them. Mine was like, I fell over on the beach. I opened my eyes. I was in the hospital. It was Tuesday. <laughs> so it was really, it was, uh, it was wild. But I recovered from that, um, carried on with university, finished university. And when I was 22, I went to Madrid to teach English. And I lived in Spain for four years because I always loved Spanish. I always wanted to Down, I came here and that has been uh, my life up till now pretty much like uh, um, yes that's actually that's not a lot of stories that could have gone really wrong like especially yeah lots of them did go wrong going into a coma still it going wrong yeah. it could have went worse for yeah, sure yeah. but now no, if I see you now <laughs> like you're really fit you have a really good body everything is like like in the end it's, oh, it's, sweetie, it's okay you. you know it's like yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like maybe not everything like of course I just saw you in the sauna it's like uh, but um Still, it means it's not all bad. <laughs> no, no, no. And um, yep, um, I recovered from it. Um, and I think it did influence um, my idea of meaning and what it is to find a purpose in life. Um, I still feel like I haven't really resolved it i'm going to um go back to teaching i think because i worked in a corporate environment now and it was very it, the reason i really started working there was because they were like a startup engine for supporting environmentally friendly startups so i was like well, this is this is as green as a corporate space gets. It was not. It was not. Things were sponsored by Shell and things. The CEO was getting a private jet back and forth from Monaco to Amsterdam twice a week because he wanted to be in the office. He runs a, a green startup company. 
<laughs> like it was like it's like oh this is nonsense this is nonsense so i would like to be in a space where it feels like it's a positive thing because obviously so many things are corporate the corporate sphere is hard to get away from and even like in schools and things you still have to everything is still tied in with corporations and corporate interests um so i'm trying to find meaning even though i quite dislike that reality um about how much the world is controlled by corporations and controlled by corporations in a way where it doesn't seem like there's a long-term goal for humanity it's just until the next quarter um and i find that very depressing sometimes i find that very it beats me down and that wears away my sense of meaning in the world it really wore away my sense of meaning when i was working in den haag um what do you mean by meaning like how do you what do you what do you think is meaningful if you say that yeah i think it would be um trying to create a sense of progress amongst people which isn't defined by shallow or ephemeral goals so i think in a very collectivist way i think generally maybe it's because i grew up in a house with like seven kids <coughs> excuse me i'm getting over a cough it's the start of the next disease but um um maybe it was growing up in a house where i was sharing a bedroom most of my first 18 years with like three kids or two kids um it really gave me a sense of collectiveness and sometimes um i feel like it would be more useful to me if i was naturally more focused on myself um i find a sense of meaning from collectively going forward towards something um and like i said not something shallow like just profit i would like to think that humans could get to the point where we see the value in other things but i'm not sure if that's possible to have something based more in everybody having enough without that turning into something authoritarian or negative but um i get meaning when i meet people who i feel like their own primary in their own interests are not their primary interests their primary interests are more collectively focused they're more focused on their family on their students on their community um and i think th sometimes that doesn't come so easily to me either um maybe i look at things from that perspective but i can still be very selfish but when i meet people who really think about the community aspect first i find it very inspiring and it's something that i try to do so i think in terms of like where i get the greatest sense of meaning 
it's when I'm least focused on myself and my own ego. And there's been certain parts of my life where that's felt very easy and very natural. And that's when I've been most happy is when I'm not really thinking about myself. Um, but again, I don't find that easy. I think I look at things collectively, like I look at things from the group, but a lot of the time my stream one way of thinking would be, give me that, that's mine. I grew up in a house where, you know, you fight for slices of pizza and stuff. So I was um, thinking collectively, but also being like, mm -hmm. everything is like, that's mine. Otherwise your shit gets broken. Um, so I feel like this has gotten away from me a bit, but I would say, my greatest the parts of my life when I felt most meaning are when I'm focused on community or other people rather than myself. So do you say meaning is when you when you feel meaningful? So something is meaningful because it feels meaningful? Because um, it feels meaningful. Yeah, because... Yeah. Because like... I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but um, how you uh, tell me if <laughs> if I'm if I'm wrong? But you said that um, you get the greatest sense of meaning when you uh, do something for, or w when you think in a collective way, when you mm. do something for the community. So, um, do you say that this that it's like objectively meaningful to do? like to 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 make a positive impact in the society or in in your environment or is it just meaningful because it feels meaningful uh i think um is saying something is objectively meaningful is very difficult because meaning is almost by its definition is subjective you know because meaning is a it is an individual thing right like it's something you feel inside depends on how you define it but that's true uh, yeah, okay yeah. that's true that's true yeah 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 um i think the most useful and the best way to find meaning in the world is through something which helps others and i think that's a cliche it's very obvious But I think that a lot of the ways that we've become individualized and atomized do eat away at our collective sense of meaning. And I feel like we're kind of going through a crisis of meaning to an extent, especially places like Europe and America. You see grand narratives break apart and the way that people find meaning is much more separated and individuated um, and without these grand narratives it becomes much harder to find something collective that you can work towards so as how people achieve a sense of meaning as it changes as i see it become more individualized i see it becoming from my perspective and i'm 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 older so it's like i'm 31 so a lot of this stuff might just be 
me getting old and being like Instagram bullshit. As I TikTok is evil and stuff like that. Just <laughs> old old man stuff. Okay, well yeah yeah there's also that. I'm an old man. Yeah, at heart, at heart, you have an old broken heart. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Doing um, 24 hours in the chair, you know. <laughs> you know how much I aged. <laughs> yeah yeah. But so much of what I see on um, Instagram and TikTok is the search for approval, the search for community, and the creation of these artificial communities which aren't enriching, which are still break you away from everything. And it seems like the rates of mental illness are going up as these things become popular. There's such a drive for it. There's such an individuating effort. There's such a such a thing that like it's almost like what we we're talking about before if you love everybody do you if you love everybody do you love anybody if you are connected to everybody are you connected to anybody is this constant bombard like uh, being bombarded by everything that's happening in Israel and Palestine it's good that we know it's good that we know But what effect does that have on people, like on their sense of self? When you see something ha terrible happening in Yemen, in Guatemala, in France, in China, in Japan, in Ireland, in Netherlands, everywhere, all of this massive suffering just inundating you and all this massive extra information inundating you, you're connected to everybody. But at that stage, how connected are you to anyone? True. Um, question about this. So not not especially about the connection, but about you. So you say it's meaningful, like about objective. Like you didn't claim objective meaning, right? You just say it's meaningful no. because it feels. Is it because it feels right, or like so? It is not right to to do something, like. If you say there is no objective meaning, then it would mean that like nothing matters, like in the grand scheme. Like, do you? Um, like, like you also in the grand grand scheme, everything that we do is likely to not matter. Um, so if I, I I could just go out and start torturing little children and it would be fine. Where would you get them from? No, no. Uh, <laughs> I won't explain myself. <laughs> Where would you get all these kids from? That's what I want to know. No, um, no, no. I of of course it's good to uh, minimize pain and to maximize utility, but it's something else. Like when you say like, what is utility? Because it's it's because. Maybe an engineer gets, an engineer in the 19th century in Victorian England gets incredible sense of meaning from designing machines. And you could say that this, that has helped people so much. People in Victorian England designs steamships and uh, steam-powered trains and, you know, industrial factories and everything that our world is based on. And from one perspective, that's an excellent thing. And that's a great way to get your meaning from. But in another way, that is being the destruction of, that is being one of the core parts of the destruction of our earth. 
So it's like from one perspective, that's a very positive way to get your meaning from. From another perspective, it's a very negative thing. So it's these kind of areas where it's um, where they kind of cross over, where it's like, how is that? How could it not be subjective? Because there's an, you know, everything. Um, torturing kids, obviously, it's an extreme example. How can you create benefit from that? But but okay, so how do you measure benefit? So if if you say there is benefit, so that means there is something that is objectively better than something else. So like suffering or, or like suffering is objectively worse than no suffering. Um, so there is like a underlying or overarching function that gives your action meaning. Like for example, the engineer. It depends on where you look. It would be a meaningful or a not not meaningful action, or you say, okay, it's it's subjective. But still, there is. Do you believe that there is something that underlies it, like suffering, that you want you want to stop suffering, or or not, not you want to, but like this would be something. This would be like an anchor to anchor good and bad, or. Um, uh, so, so you have like an anchor where you can anchor your subjective good and bad, or okay. is it just that you choose like a random good and bad, and this is like okay, I'm an engineer, I like this, I think this is good, so this is good. I think that that's how most. I think that's how it works most of the time. Um, sort of reflecting what we talked about, stream one and stream two thinking. I think a lot of it is finding something you're good at, finding something you kind of enjoy. subjective i think it is very subjective and you can find meanings from trying to do things which you view as positive and that are likely to have a positive impact um like um i took a long break from being a teacher and i think i'm gonna go back to it but i think like teaching history and english to uh, children would give a uh, real sense of meaning because to me because it would give me a chance to broaden other people's perspective broaden children's perspective give them a way of analyzing the world give them uh, different tools for looking how at how things work and questioning how certain things work um so in terms of the um, in terms of like nailing or anchoring your uh, beliefs at a certain point, um, I think you have to with what you have. So like I grew up in Ireland in the 90s and the 2000s. My beliefs have been very shaped by that. Uh, my parents are both um, hippie academics. My belief system has been very shaped by that. Um, but I think it's always important to question yourself and you can all, you can never reach bullshit because there's certain arguments that you're like, okay, this is true and this is false. And when I think about what's positive in the world, when I was working at a corporation, 
all of the things seemed like just paring away this barely the surface it was so clearly so, uh, so much of it was bullshit so much of it was bullshit it was a profit driven company that will do anything that i could see for profit but i think there is a difference between really um trying to do something meaningful and trying to get to that point and just following the stream of society and being like well this must be okay up to a point if everybody's doing it um and i think that's why i took the job was because where i had based my where i had like landed my anchor um since i was a kid was like quite left wing and uh free speech and positive in terms of education and as i got older and things became more and more corporate and more of my friends began working in a corporate sphere and it became more about becoming an adult and getting money my anchor got pulled away from the point where it was and the further it got pulled away from that point and maybe it's just because i landed on this point for my anchor when i was 15 or 16 but that still feels like the true thing to me and when i was working at this place i had a lot of uh problems i felt stressed i felt a problem i couldn't sleep i was starting to have things close to panic attacks um i think it was because i was just going to a place where it had just such a profound emptiness when it came to meaning for me i couldn't see what the benefit was that we were doing if anything it seemed like we were masquerading as positive while being generally negative while still enforcing um a kind of a very surface sheen of being green of being ecologically friendly and then actually having none of that um and i think yeah it's hard to nail down inauthenticity and authenticity but the amount of inauthenticity i saw in the um in the corporate sphere while i was there like you know all the linkedin shit like it's the fakest thing in the world it's so transparently fake and so i would want to get away from that i think that finding real meaning you have to divorce yourself you have to try to ignore um the way that the wind is blowing in society you can't just be pushed along by other people because then that means that you'll never achieve anything if you don't have that anchor to hold you down does it make sense or is this mm-hmm. rambling at this no, stage i'm I, trying uh, to explain it um because yeah so i felt like i was in this space i cared about these things and as i saw more and more people going to the corporate sphere and graduating having things i was like well i need to do that and i kind of panicked and i felt like i was trying to put my beliefs like here so it's still aligned partially with my beliefs but lots of my beliefs i was like i have to let them go they're childish and i don't think i can 
let some of those core beliefs go. Do you believe that is this because they are true or because they are like the ones you grew up with? The ones I grew up with and also the ones that throughout my life when I've put them to the test, the ones that didn't come up with nonsense. Okay, the ones that didn't turn out to be false. Exactly, yes, yes. exactly. So, um, um, like uh, values I have that I feel like meaningful, not getting angry when I, something as small as not getting angry when I talk to someone. Because like something else I heard when I was a kid was don't disagree with people and don't talk about difficult subjects. I think that is horseshit. I think you should absolutely talk about difficult subjects. But another one I heard is don't get angry at people when you talk about these kind of things. That is good advice, I think. Because then if you introduce, if you get emotional about the things that you maybe you do feel emotional about, it just reduces into a shouting match. But if you don't discuss these things and these things aren't open, then you can't... Di directly address them so i think i grew up with values that i've abandoned because i don't think that they're useful there's other values that i've tried to put to the tests that i feel have are useful and are um do enrich my life and make it feel more meaningful like um meditating and feeling more in the moment and feeling calmer and then there's other lessons which I've picked up from friends and people around me um, which I try to live by so I think it involves trying to see other people that you think are living good lives see how those lives correspond to their own belief system and what they do and try to take inspiration from that and don't get bogged down or caught up with uh, money i'm really bad at money so this is just like <laughs> this is also like a poor person point like don't worry about that obviously you should worry about it but don't be led by that um, I see almost everything in our society primarily being led by money. And again, everything seems to come, keep going back to the stream one and stream two thing. Because how many, everything that I see in, or most things that I see in the news, most big international events, I feel like can get put back to money first and the moralizing came afterwards. It was money and power, and then the moralizing came afterwards as well. It felt How like do you to mean? Me. For example, um, this is a, maybe a controversial example, but like, let's say Ukraine and Russia. I feel like a lot of that was money first, money and power first. What's the best way that America and Europe can make money? And then the moralizing followed. They're like, we have to support Ukraine. We have to do this. I think the main motivation was waste the Russian army, supply weapons to the Ukraine. And then afterwards, they're like, but we're doing it so they can be free from Russians. And it's like, that's not the reason. That's okay, the so, reason. so you have like an incentive that you want to follow. And after you give it like a, uh, you give your incentive like a moral reason like 
you, you start like you there is a underlying reason why some people want something and mm -hmm. then they like create a moral compass around it like uh, yeah like some uh, kind of narrative like, yeah, exactly like the, the system one and two thinking that you start yeah. with the system one you do something uh because of some reasons and after you find like a Yeah. explanation for why you I did think, it. I think absolutely, like, and I think some people do that consciously, like people who sell um, rocket launchers, that make rocket launchers in Virginia and want to sell them to people in Kiev. They, they probably know. They, they're like, no, this is about profit. This is about profit. But I'm sure that there's so many politicians who all over the world who go into something exactly like this and go, okay, so the pressure is coming from this. If we do this, our supporters will make a lot of money and will also hurt our enemy. And they're like, that make me a shitty person. They go, no, because I, Russia is attacking Ukraine. That's the thing. But it's like, but there's, do you know, there's another 10 Ukraines happening around the world that America either doesn't care about at all or is actively supporting the person who's hurting them so why is this matter so much it's because it's convenient and i what i see in a lot of politics is convenient power moves and then it's pretended to be a moral thing and it's like a cliche i feel like this is like such an old cliche but it's something i still see every day with news that's happening right now and this idea is like They invent this stuff, do you know, like it's it's about power and it's about money and they'll come up with the morals later. I think is almost like a truism. But whenever something happens now, it gets ignored until 10 years later. Like, for example, uh, the Iraq war at the time. There was so many people who go, no, this is the more this is like when we fought Hitler, this is like when we fought Stalin, this is like a good moral war. And it's like, no, it isn't. This is a convenient chance to attack something. And then 10 years later, everybody is like, okay, okay, that's fine. So it's like, it is a certain struggle with human nature and our emotions and our psychology and the fact that these are being manipulated maybe more than they've ever been before does that make sense are we being more psychologically manipulated because people used to have religion but was that psychological manipulation if you don't think you're manipulating the person uh the question is if the people now consciously try to manipulate because you said like the people with the rocket launchers probably do but like for like, sure like um, but <laughs> many other people don't. I think the most most of the people believe in 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 the, th the things they say. Probably. Um, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm I'm more, I'm more of a pessimist. Yeah, I feel like you're very optimistic. Yes, I am. But, <laughs> yeah. but but you're right. Maybe maybe. So you say it's a difference because because like in the church the people really believed like that the um, how was it called when they went to like all the knights. They went in uh, crusades. Uh, the crusades. They were like, "This is the right thing," and they were all like really behind it. So this was better than now, where the people consciously know that they're. I, I wouldn't say no. Nah, uh, I'm not saying it's better. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm like, like the crusades, <laughs> ten out of ten. No, no, no. Like I don't. I don't think it's great. Uh, not better, but 
manipulation involves a purposeful effort to manipulate, right? Because it'd be unconscious. Would that still be manipulation? I guess it still is. I guess it's because, no, because I was just, it was it was a really a throwaway thing when we're undergoing more psychological manipulation than ever before. And I was like, is that true? I don't know if that's true. We're undergoing a huge amount of psychological and emotional manipulation <laughs> constantly. Um to the point where you, I think, really have to separate it, yourself from it. And if you want to really find meaning, I think, and it's not available to everybody, but I think a good way of finding real meaning is something like what you're doing. Um, like you're very informed, you study psychology, you're doing this podcast, you're trying to find out different approaches, and you're thinking about going to, going to this medic. I say medication yeah. retreat. Meditation <laughs> retreat. After the it's medication. Really the, one first, then the other. Yeah, yeah. The meditation retreat. So you can sit with these thoughts and reflect and do these kind of things. And that's a luxury to be able to do that. But I think that that is one of the best ways to really find meaning. Like soak up as much knowledge as you can. And then put away your phone, put away your laptop. And heavily reflect on it. On what you've learned and your experiences and I think that that's a much better way of finding meaning than anything you're going to find on Twitter or Instagram which is such an old thing to say <laughs> but, okay. it, but, but it's true but it's yeah. true it's you can't find it just from the outside world it is going to be a synthesis of your internal values and your external experiences and the only way I think to really combine those two in a way which will be useful for your actions and your behavior in the future is serious study and then serious reflection. Where is the truth? Because you say like, okay, you can search for, like you can search for meaning. You can, mm. uh, you, like you can... Uh, you get information from the outside and yeah. you reflect on it and then you find your meaning. So this is somewhat, um, and you also said that there, there are things that are more true than others. So there are, you found out that oh, there did are, I? yes, 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 <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> okay. For yeah. sure. Which things are more true than others? Um, for example, uh, you, you made, you actually made an example for this. Your, your example was uh, that you shouldn't talk about bad stuff with people is, is wrong but that you shouldn't get angry when you talk or like or you shouldn't talk about uncomfortable mm. stuff is wrong mm -hmm. um and also before you said that there are things that are more right than others and i would like to explore where this comes from um, yeah. because it's super hard because i i think many many people i i don't even know like maybe it's I, because i see this in so many people like i uh, that they say okay there is no objective Meaning it's everything yeah. is like subjective, but still somewhere there is an anchor. Like so many, like, like, yeah. like also like you said, okay, there is like not really this objective thing, but mm. somewhere you have an anchor. Like there is something that is better than other things. I think that it's very, um, it's, there is no objective truth. There is no absolute objective truth. Um, we can keep searching. We're not, humans are not really, we d haven't evolved to find an absolute truth. We've evolved to survive in a forest and work together. We're not built to have, to have senses to help us find any absolute truth. What, what could that be? That we see atoms? That we see things on a molecular level? Is that more true than the way we perceive it? Because 
it's more of a map the way that we see ourselves. I don't think so, but I don't think that it, I think it's still good to try to aim for objectivity. As so paradoxical as that is. True. Yeah, because there's a certain thing with history where when like there is no objective truth and it's like there is no absolute perfect history, that's 100% true. But a lot of people took that to mean like, oh, so I don't have to try. So it's more about me shaping. Okay, cool. It's like, no, you should still try to challenge yourself and try to be objective. It's an ideal. It's like the Buddha or Jesus. You try to do it. Nobody expects you to do it or few people expect you to reach the perfect ideal, but it doesn't mean you don't go for it, even if it's impossible. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, I understand that, and I actually, I think I agree, but it's super hard to, to phrase, because, like, for so many people, unconsciously, it's uh, it's like, oh no, there's no, no subjective right or wrong, and then I say... Like, for example, the torturing children example. Ah, no, this is wrong. <laughs> like, what um, if those children, what yeah. if they were bad children? Yeah, 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 yeah no, of no. course. But okay, I, <coughs> I can just uh, ask my closing question. Mm -hmm. And okay, so this question is, um, do you have any book or YouTube video or podcast or any kind of me any kind of knowledge, any kind of media that you would really advise people to read watch whatever that you would advise me to read watch whatever um for for meaning or just in general uh, just the thing you would advise like if, if you could give people one thing that they have to read or what or no nah, yeah just w one thing or the thing that influenced yourself the most just um just a thing that comes um. to mind It can also be if you. It can also be a fantasy book if you say, "This is such an amazing <laughs> like Harry Potter was so yeah, amazing." Yeah. I wrote a Harry book Potter. called "Changing Names," which you can find on Amazon <laughs> Kindle in three days. That will solve your oh, problems. Oh, no, no. Maybe uh, the dark his dark materials trilogy by Philip Pullman really struck me very hard. It's a fantasy series for children with three books in it. And um, it deals with issues of religion and um, authority, um, um, but in a very interesting way, in a very compelling way. This has been a Rational Optimization Podcast. I hope you learned something. As you may know, I'm trying to make this podcast as good as possible. Like I'm trying to provide as much value as I possibly can in every episode to you. So today I'm not asking you for like a five-star review or anything like this. I'm asking you, could you please, if you have any idea what I can improve to make this podcast or to make each episode or to just make this episode, if I would do it again, more valuable to you, can you give me feedback? Like on Spotify, there are those feedback boxes and on YouTube, you can write a comment. It would be really amazing if you would help me to make this podcast as good as possible. See you in the next one.